Cycling is an incredibly difficult sport sociologically. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo! Welcome to episode 47 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about cycling being sociological. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And a quick review this week to start the show off. Outstanding podcast, five stars, Marcos M. Lazzarotto from the USA. I really enjoy listening to your podcast when traveling to races. Thanks for all the great work. Thank you, Marcus, for dropping that review into the iTunes store. And a reminder to anybody else listening that I would love it if you dropped a review into the iTunes store because five stars make me go yippee doodah day. And the news, well, the racing from this week, the Criterium du Dauphine. I've got to say, it's been a little boring. Well, I don't know. I must be coming off the high of the Giro because the weather seems really nice. All the scenery is beautiful, but the racing seems a little dull. And I don't know, I can't really put my finger on it. Maybe it's because we're missing the sparks of the big guns out there hitting it up day after day. It seems like they're just going through the motions, waiting for the sprints at the end of the day. There was a little bit of action in stage three and the climb towards the end was good. The win on stage one was excellent and unexpected, which is something that I do love about cycling because it doesn't always happen that the underdog wins. But I've got to say, the standout right now, Rowan Dennis in the lead. What else can I say? Another Aussie stepping it up and doing amazing stuff. You've got to remember that he is a hitter. He got third place in the Tour of Cali Stage 6 time trial, so his form has been growing this year. He did come to this tour to ride for Andrew Talansky, but Talansky has had issues. So Talansky set him up the road and he's been able to stick with everyone to this point. So this is the interesting point of the race. And today's stage is going to really be the decider. Two rides of note though, Boston Hagen winning stage three, the dude, the diesel engine got up and won the stage. It was a really good sprint. Sky did a lot of work for him and he paid them back with the win. I've got to say also backing up to have a sixth in the time trial yesterday as well was awesome stuff. But also, Michael Matthews missing out on the win of Stage 3. I really think he was more poor positioning and a little bit of inexperience that led him down and he got second, which is still an excellent result and probably one of his best results this year, if not the best result this year. But I can't help but think that maybe... Some of it was to do with the lack of aero helmet, but if you were sponsored by Scott's aero monstrosity, I think you would have worn the exact same one. All right, so let's get down to the nuts and bolts this week. And this week, I'm talking about the power of habit design. This episode is based on Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit and the work of B.F. Fogg. I mentioned Charles Duhigg the Power of Habit in episode 17 already, but I was looking for something to listen to on a ride recently, stuck this in my ears, and it really reminded me of the power of this stuff, and especially when it's applied to cycling, because cycling is an all-encompassing element of our lives, and it's something that definitely 
any small part of our life can be adjusted to make it better. So when you are thinking about habits as I move through this episode, have a think about the ones that could make the most change to the way that you ride and make you faster on the bike. There are definitely lots of ways that this can be applied to cycling. Your habits are your behavior. And if you're not happy with some element of your cycling, big or small, then this is a great place to start. Examples of great places to start. A couple off the top of my head, consistently training or consistently getting the hours of sleep that you want, eating poorly, changing certain elements of your nutrition, and also one which I'm always reminded of on a recovery ride, being competitive on a recovery ride. Somehow stopping the habit of sucking the wheel of some poor commuter in the commuter cup whenever you're just trying to get around and not put yourself in the red on a recovery ride. But we create and maintain habits to conserve mental energy so we can think about more complex and difficult issues. These habits can be good or bad or neutral, but once established, they never really leave us. They lurk around waiting to be rediscovered and creating habits is straightforward, but choosing which habits to create isn't. So you can take it from the angle of creating new ones or adjusting old bad habits and how you want to change those. How habits drive the behavior of people can be due to deliberate design or it can be just due to routine. So habits are a powerful pattern of behavior that can unfold automatically because it is so ingrained into what we do. This is the really interesting part and it's the crux of the whole idea of being able to identify and change habits. Every habit has a loop consisting of the cue, which is a trigger that tells the brain to go into automatic mode and which habit to use. The routine, which can be physical, mental, or emotional, but it's essentially the behavior behind the habit. And three, the reward, which helps your brain figure out if this particular loop is worth remembering for the future. Over time, this becomes more and more automatic and the cue and reward become that intertwined that a powerful sense of anticipation and craving emerges. And this is where we can really get into trouble. But the best actionable advice that I can give you is to focus on changing one habit that rules them all. It's called the keystone habit and it has the power to reprogram other elements of your life. So I'm going to use an example from my life, which is a habit that I changed over the past four or five months. And it does happen to be a keystone habit as well. A keystone habit unique to me, yours may be different or it could be the same. So the habit that I wanted to change is to drink one liter of water by 12 p.m. So I'm going to go through how to identify habit loops and how to modify them using my example. So starting at the top, which is the cue. Every habit functions the same way. At first, there's a cue, some type of trigger that makes the behavior unfold automatically. Studies tell us that the cue can be a location, a time of day, a certain emotional state, other people, or just a pattern of behaviors that consistently triggers a certain routine. Starting with the cue means that you're thinking about everything surrounding the cue or the trigger that starts the process of the habit. So what time is it? Where are you? Who else is around? What did you just do? What emotion are you feeling? 
So having an aim of one litre of water before 12 p.m., I was generally always halfway there. So I would automatically grab 500 millilitres of water with breakfast, but after that I'd stall. I, I wouldn't remember until the afternoon or I just wouldn't even think about it until dinner time. I would go the entire day basically with just 500 millilitres of water. The way that I created a queue was I set up a reminder at askmeevery.com for 12 p.m. every day. I did this because I am usually on the computer at 12 p.m. or if I'm not, I'm checking my email regularly. So that gives me a queue of when to begin the habit process, which, like I said, is mostly automatic after a certain time of doing it. So this really was the perfect vehicle to get the message to me. There definitely are other ways that you can set up either Ask Me Every, which you can go through and do an SMS, and they can get an SMS sent to your phone directly, or there's another website called ifttt.com, which is if this then that. You can set up reminders in there based on any criteria that you want to send you emails or messages that are going to remind you when the time is right, when you're in a perfect state to act on the message that you get. If you are setting up a queue or you're trying to adjust a queue that you have, you can also think about it like this. There's one word to remember if you want to create a daily habit. And I discovered this word four years ago and now it's so obvious to me. And the word is after. After is the key to creating a new daily habit. You have to know what that behavior comes after. So if you want to take vitamins and make that a routine, a new habit in your life, you need to know what that behavior comes after. Is it after you take the first bite of breakfast? Is it after you pour your morning coffee? Is it after you sit down for your first coffee break? It's up to you. You need to find where this new behavior or any new behavior fits in your life, but you need to know what it comes after. And then you can start training the routine. The trick is this. The behavior you do reliably, like fill your coffee, go to lunch, get in the car, and so on, those are already habits in your life. And if you attach a new behavior right after that habit, it's like chaining them together. And this then sequences right after that. And your brain will use your existing behavior, like pouring coffee or getting on the train or whatever, as the trigger or the reminder for the new behavior. For me in this case, I tied it to another behavior, which was checking email as the reminder. Once you move on past the queue, then the next step is the routine. The next part in the habit loop is the routine, the behavior itself. What you're wanting to do is insert a new routine. The negative habit is that I wasn't drinking. So the habit I was trying to create was filling up my cup and drinking until I had a liter of water in my system at 12 p.m. The funny thing about the routine, for me, it was a little deeper than I first thought. Simplicity changes behavior. Now, that's not the typical thing most people think when they think about changing their behavior. They think about motivation. I've got to be motivated. But the fact of the matter is simplicity is more important than motivation in changing behavior. Now, I won't go into the details why, but let me just give you an example. Let's say, for example, you want to drink more water, and a lot of people want to do this. If you get a water glass and you put it right where you're working throughout the day, chances are you're going to drink a lot of water. It's right there within arm's reach. Now, if you don't have water with you and you have to go somewhere to get water, like way over here, guess what? 
the odds of you drinking water go way down. Now, the fact is we humans are naturally lazy. And most people don't put it that directly, but I'll just tell you, we're lazy. We go from A to B. If we want to accomplish a task, we do a straight line. We don't want to do extra work. And so if something requires us to go a little bit farther, work a little bit harder, we'll find reasons not to do it. Think of the water glass, put it right next to you. For the behaviors you want in your life, invest a little bit of time and make that behavior easier to do. Creating simplicity was a matter of careful environment design. In my case, in order to simplify the process, I stopped buying water from the supermarket and arranged a water cooler at home with weekly delivery. I have a 500 milliliter cup that I use exclusively for drinking water. It stays on my desk at all times and the water cooler is very close to me. Another way I could have done it was just fill up a one liter container in the morning first thing and have that sitting in front of me and that would have broken it down and made it a little bit simpler. But I like cold water and we'll see why in a moment that is very important. But the point here is that you might think about how to set yourself up a little bit more at the beginning and really creating the environment for success. Gear next to your bike so you get out the door, not checking your computer before you go riding so you don't get stuck, etc., etc. You have to think about all of the environment and how you can best use anything that you set up in there to mean that you stick to this habit. The next part, which is really important but also very tricky, is the reward. The last part of the habit loop is the reward. And in some respects, the reward is the most important part because that's why habits exist, so that we can get the rewards that we want. But figuring out a reward is kind of tricky. So by asking yourself, what craving do you think your habit is satisfying, is really going to get to the bottom of why you're doing it in the first place. This part is really tricky because the reward could be buried deeper than you think. If you're creating a reward, make it real and something you can relate to. Otherwise, if you can't easily or you can't dig up why you identify with it, you're going to have trouble then setting that track in your brain. You've got to find a reward that is valuable to you. I started taking fish oil around the same time that I started sending emails at 12 o'clock about drinking. I set an email for 9 a.m., where that's basically when I would sit down at my desk and I would set an email to trigger me to take fish oil. Ultimately, I couldn't figure out the value after a bottle of pills, so I've stopped taking them. Where if I could feel the difference or research more on the difference and then look harder for the signs, maybe I would have stuck to it. But at this stage, I've stopped and I don't plan on continuing right at this moment. For me in water though, the most obvious reward is quenching my thirst immediately. Then later, it's not feeling thirsty in the afternoon. I could have said hydration, but that's not what really gets me to drink in the first place. All it is, is just wanting to quench my thirst because I'm hot and I like cold water. If you're trying to change a bad habit, you will have to test the theory of what reward you find valuable. I really value cold water to quench my thirst. I don't value getting up and moving away from my computer as could have been the case as well. So you're really going to have to find the reward. And if after you create the cue or you're using a cue that is already created, you change your behavior to figure out what you really do value. So for me, it could have been, I set the cue, I get up and I drink a cup of coffee. Do I really value the cup of coffee that I'm drinking or do I just value the time away from the computer? For me, it would be neither of those. 
when it comes to my drinking water example, it would be that I actually just enjoy the water itself. So I'm not getting up to avoid my computer, I'm just getting up to quench my thirst. You're going to have to test out over and over again until you find the, the real reason why you want to do it. And once you've got through all of this process, it's really good just to write it down in a simple plan. And I don't mean a plan that's very detailed, just a plan that says when you're going to do the cue, what behavior you're going to do, and why you're going to do it. So my plan is when I get a reminder email, I drink water until I have one liter in my system because it provides me with cool, refreshing, thirst-quenching goodness. And it's fine. I'm happy to report that it has worked so well that I've stopped the emails from coming in because I automatically now grab the second cup after I've finished the first, which it kind of accelerated the whole program. So I'm basically finishing a liter of water by 10 a.m. in the morning now, and I can actually go back and just keep drinking more. And it's actually worked that well that I've started extending it into drinking 500 milliliters of water as a habit every time I come back from a ride. So in the first half of an hour, I make sure I just get the cup straight away. It's the first thing I do before I do anything else. Also, I'm going to move this onto the bike because I'm finding I'm not drinking enough on the bike. So I'm trying to set a habit on the bike. And what I will do when I break it down, I'll have a cue of every time I look down at the clock and I see a five or a zero, then I'll have a drink of water so that I'm doing it over and over again until it becomes a habit again. So I hope that example is being clear enough to give you an idea. And from the point that I brought up earlier about the keystone habit, drinking water for me really is a keystone habit because it allows me to feel hydrated. It stops me from drinking sodas and especially around lunch and dinner time. It fills me up and it stops me from late night food craving. It makes me feel like I'm doing something good for my body as well instead of just drinking junk sodas and filling me up with sugar. So there's all these other spin-offs that come from it and this is very important when it comes to cycling because it is a full-time job being a part-time cyclist. Definitely the lifestyle of cycling, if you adjust to it in its full capacity, you're going to get the most out of yourself and you're going to get the most out of the sport and that is really what it's all about. All right, let's get to the tech, hacks, and product section. And this week, I would say it's a hack because it's not tech and it's not products, but it's all about where do you look when you're climbing? Where do you look when you're out on the road, you're struggling, and you've got a big hill in front of you that you have to get over before you finish your race or wherever you are, training ride or whatever it is? Where do you look when you're climbing? Do you look as far forward as possible, like when you're descending, trying to get a feel for the road and figure out where you're going to place the bike? Or do you look at your handlebars or your top tube? Do you look directly down? I've got to say, I believe the best place to look while you're climbing is just ahead of you. It's good to have a sense of where you are on the mountain, how far or down you are on the mountain, but I definitely see a disadvantage to your mental well-being if you keep looking too far up the road. So I do know of people that just keep looking as far as they can when they're on the bike climbing up a hill. If you're tired and you're focusing on the hill and further up the hill than you, where you are right in that moment, then I think there's going to be a mental drain and it's really going to get to you. So looking just in front of you, I really think you're going to be better off. It's tackling one chunk at a time rather than getting overwhelmed by the whole thing. And it just allows you to set your focus onto your body and your rhythm and not get overwhelmed by the monster that's in front of you. So the hack is 
Be aware of where you are on the mountain, but just concentrate of what's in front of you, whether that is a rear wheel or just you versus the mountain. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Jonathan Vorders. Cycling is an incredibly difficult sport sociologically, meaning inside a team, creating a dynamic where an individual is winning but yet it's a team sport. And how do you balance everyone's ambitions, everyone's dreams with the fact that it's only gonna be one guy that wins? And that's hard. Football, of course, the quarterback's the star, but in the end of the day, the team wins, not the quarterback individually. There really is a lot of talk about the depth of Team Sky, but one team that is often overlooked is Garmin Sharp. JV, he's built a team here that, yes, it does have depth, but it's more than that. Their team spirit really is amazing, and he has cultivated something really clever here. He's woven some magic into the fabric of the team, and more and more, we're seeing each rider have a chance to show their class, and it's not just the depth of the talent that's making the difference here. It's the depth of what each member of the team is willing to do for other riders on the team, and I believe that is making a really big difference. But that is it for me this week. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cape or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. Uh, A story I like that makes me think about kind of why I bet you a lot of the sports scientists do what we do or work with with athletes is, one, it's different than our normal population of sick patients. You know, I'm an ER doctor, so I see people who don't take the best care of themselves. But then the cyclists are on the other extreme, and they almost don't take care of themselves because they're, you know, they're working so hard. Like, they're just an amazing physiologic specimen. And I had this realization as to, like, what an amazing engine these guys are. And, And you might do sport and think that you're good and ride up some hills fast or something, but when you see these guys do it, even if you've been around and it's jaw dropping, and there was a there was one time when we were in the tour of Italy and we we're going up some Dolomites, and I think Christian had some problem with his bike, and he came back to the car and he was training, like using this climb as training, you know, and he's in the middle of the Giro, which I always find, you know, entertaining in itself. But he's sitting there talking to us, and steam is just coming off of him, and he, I mean, we're flying up this hill, and he's having a conversation with us about why his bike's not working and you know the first group's just ahead of him and I remember looking out the car and just looking at the heat and the power and you know what he was doing physically and I you know I was I was kind of awestruck I was like this is an impressive feat of physiology and medicine and it comes back then later we were having a conversation and uh and one day he said to me Christian said he said you know what? like no one needs to do what I do like you know you you're a doctor like you go do help people and it's a good job. Like, I just ride my bike around. And I had to stop him and say, no, I, I disagree with you. Someone definitely has to do what you do because you inspire everybody else to do what they do. And like, look, and I, and I was speaking from my own personal experience that watching him do what he does, it's inspiring. And I said, you know, it makes everybody else go to their job. Regardless of what their job is, they think about that athlete doing their event. And that's true for, you know, any professional athlete. That's why I think people are so drawn to sport because you get to see someone stepping out of the norm of what you could do or what the human being is capable of doing and I think it's inspiring.